Every individual makes a difference. I mean, for instance, if you look at meat eaters, we could save 70 to 80% of the land, water, and energy resources by going plant-based. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us in more than 130 countries and healthy cities around the globe. Toms River, New Jersey, Molokai, Hawaii, Nairobi, Kenya. We appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 33 of season five, number 332 overall. All of us know that what we eat impacts our own health. But what we talked about recently on the show is that it also impacts literally every other person on the face of the earth. Literally. All 8 billion of us. And we're going to be diving a little bit deeper into that today. We're going to be taking a closer look and helping us do that, putting the magnifying glass on the environment and our diet is Dr. Joanne Kong. She is a faculty member at the University of Richmond and international speaker. She also has a great book out called Vegan Voices. And because she's a Renaissance woman, she's also a classically trained concert pianist. And so what we'll be doing today is getting into some facts here really love some facts. We're going to be comparing vegan diets to the standard American diet in terms of their environmental impact. Dr. Kong has great data comparing the two head to head when it comes to carbon footprints and land resources, water usage, the amount of forest land it takes to produce food. And the really interesting one to me is grains, because you would think with a plant-based diet, especially a healthy one, there would be an abundance of grains on your plate. But that number, when it comes to being vegan, the amount of grains that are produced when you're eating a plant-based diet is minuscule compared to the amount that it takes to feed somebody who is eating an omnivorous diet. Interesting, but we have all the data to back that up. And we're also going to be talking today about the idea that if one person changes, if only you change, it's not going to amount to much. So why even bother? Well, there's a very big reason why and Dr. Kong has that. Also, some things that we can all do right now, and what happens if we keep moving in the direction we are now? What is the end game here? That may not be the answer that you're hoping for, but we do have a very big reason also to hold on to hope. We have stats on a tsunami of health and environmentally conscious eaters that are coming of age and how much they can help move that needle. And speaking of that, how can you move the needle for someone who is really dug in and just won't listen to anything that you have to say? We all seem to have someone like that in our life and we want so badly to get them to understand. So how can you finally get that light bulb to turn on? Well. Let's find out right now with Dr. Joanne Kong and special thanks to Marty Rosenthal for sponsoring this episode of The Exam Room. Thank you so very much for being here. Thank you so much, Chuck. And thank you for all the amazing work you do and Neil Barnard and PCRM. 
you're really making a difference. <laughs> <laughs> Believe yeah. you me, when I say it is our pleasure, we we truly mean it. We we absolutely love what we do. Um, we could take this conversation in so many directions, but I do want to stay focused on the environment today. I know that that's something that you have spoken so passionately about in the past. Um, let's start with you, though. I mean, I know that you had kind of this healthy-ish diet growing up, but how much meat and dairy were in, in your diet as a child? Well, oftentimes in my public presentations, I feel that I'm at an advantage because I was not born vegan when I was young. I grew up in a household where animal products were regularly consumed. And I always mentioned that because truly, um, I did not have a choice. I was simply living in my family situation and doing uh, as my family has always done in terms of the food that was put in front of us. And as youngsters, most of us don't question that. We simply accept, oh, this is the way that things are. So I think that's important to point out that it's never about you know, accusing people or judging them or shaming them, but simply to say that this is how we developed as a culture, this meat-centric culture to accept the exploitation of animals. But for so many of us, as we're seeing all around the globe, it's like the light bulb has, has gone on in our heads um, to, to make that connection to what we're doing. Um, and for me, it happened when I was a grad school student. My husband brought home a book by Jim Mason and Peter Singer called Animal Factories. And it was really a groundbreaking book that came out around 1980. It was black and white. It had pictures. It told essentially where our food comes, what happens to these animals. And it's like we thought, how come this never occurred to us? And so that was my wake up call to leave animals off of the plate. And then eventually, so even though we were ethically centered in our decision, as the problems with the environment and climate change have accelerated, I became even more passionate about spreading the message that truly the ways that we eat that are meant to nourish and sustain us, instead they're impacting our sustainability and threatening our very ability to survive. So it sounds like when you first made this change after reading the book in the 80s, right. it sounds to me like you were focused on the animal welfare side of things. Yes. So when did the environment and things like greenhouse gas emissions and carbon right. footprint first pop up on your radar? Actually, I would say about 10 years ago, because my husband and I first went vegetarian, and during all those years, we, we went vegetarian back in 1985. During all those years, once in a while, we would purchase eggs or milk because we were cooking, say, for a company dinner or family members, and it was just a very once-in-a-while sort of thing. But as I became more educated and had friends who were environmentalists and concerned about animals, I just started to realize that going vegan is the best choice. And so I've been fully vegan, I would say, for about eight or nine years. And I, I just hope that more and more people make that connection. 
but I want to go all the way back to 1985 yeah. now. I yeah. mean, <laughs> that's like way ahead of the curve. I think the latest estimate is somewhere around 1% of the population, at least here in the U.S., right. identifies as being exclusively plant-based. But here you are in the mid-80s, and I would think that it's it's a fraction of a percent even just being vegetarian then. So what was that experience like for you? Yeah, I mean, it was even more difficult because of all places. We were living in Texas at wow. the time. <laughs> I, I, I was uh, living, we were living in San Antonio where I had my first college teaching job. And I'll never forget the time we went to a restaurant and we kind of proudly told the waiter, hey, we're vegetarian, we don't eat animals. And, and the waiter said, oh yeah, we'll bring you this delicious vegetable soup. And the waiter brings the soup and there's meat in it. And we, we tell the waiter we cannot eat this. And he says, well, the pieces are really small. Um, so that disconnect, of course, was so much greater back then. But I do have to say, I mean, I was in Texas, in Houston uh, last month, and things have changed so much. There are all vegan restaurants in Houston, veg societies, uh, planet foundations that, that are so involved in educating the public. So to me, comparing myself back in the 80s to seeing what's happening now, things have really, really changed. I mean, even in just the past five years, make a trip to the grocery store and, and you see the, the huge amount of plant-based products. 40% of American consumers now prefer plant-based milks. We see dairy farms going out of business. So the awareness is growing. So as long as we're all pushing and getting people to think in new ways about how their food impacts so many aspects of our lives, we're going to see a much better and more sustainable planet. Is it fair to say that the younger crowd is really helping to drive this awareness when it comes to the idea of plant-based eating? I, I ask because I saw a survey, and I, I wish I had the numbers in front of me, Dr. Kong, but I don't. But I, I believe it was with college students, it was like as much as a quarter of them uh, identified as eating a vegetarian or an exclusively plant-based diet. Again, don't quote me on those figures, but just anecdotally among the students that you interact with, have you seen just kind of this big boom? Yeah, definitely. In fact, I found um, some information last year that said something like 42% of vegans globally are millennials. So in my work, I do a lot of speaking at universities to uh, not only vegan and animal rights groups, but sustainability and environmental groups. And young people are really pushing this. They're becoming so much aware. You have Greta Thunberg, of course. And so many people are saying, if we're going to have a future, we're going to have to change the ways in which we eat, which is why it's so important, especially to me as an educator, to speak to young people. I, I did so many Zoom presentations uh, the past couple of years speaking to high schools and, and kids and young adults are, are so concerned about the state of the planet. And they are the ones um, who really can make a difference for their futures. Before we dive into some data here, let's kind of address those of us who might still be a little bit cynical, you know, maybe good hearted, but still cynical, who say, well, how much of an impact could just 
myself have, right? If I changed over, like the impact here would just be infinitesimal compared to the overall problem. So why even bother? So when you get that kind of pushback from somebody, what is your message to them? I simply tell them that that old adage, every individual makes a difference. I mean, if you just look at the whole animal agriculture industry, not only is it massively inefficient in terms of resources, um, I mean, for instance, if you look at meat eaters, people who still consume animal flesh, they use three times the amount of soil in order to produce that animal flesh. We could save 70 to 80% of the land, water, and energy resources by going plant-based. Vegans use a 13th of the water and 18th of the land resources. We save 1,000 gallons of, of water a day by not consuming animals. And our carbon footprint is, if you put it into equivalencies of tons of CO2. It's like 1.5 tons of CO2 equivalent a year compared to 3.3 tons for someone who consumes animal flesh. The thing I think that is difficult is that we don't see the direct correlation, right? We are not in the Amazon seeing the massive swaths of forest being cut down. We are not seeing this species that are dying every single day. We do see things like air pollution, um, water pollution, things that, that are more closer to us. So a lot of people will look at climate change and still see it, first of all, as a problem that's too big, too big for them to address. They see it as something that's kind of distant. It, it, it's like it's a, a slow moving thread. It's more ambiguous. And so they don't see how they can make a direct difference. They're more concerned. I think if you ask most people, they're concerned mostly with focusing on the everyday aspects of, of how they're living. Um, so that's part of the challenge here. Um, and of course, it's exacerbated by the political and government um, policies that are in place. 63% of subsidies in the U.S. go to the meat and dairy industries. Um, the USDA, you know, they put out the plate of what you should be eating. I believe there is still the, the cup in the corner to represent uh, consuming dairy, uh, drinking milk. And I know Neil Barnard has talked about this at length, how you know the USDA essentially supports and regulates the dairy industry. So. Um, being so profit-driven, we're pushing, having to push against that whole complex of industries that rely on exploitation of animals. It's big business, you know, it's hundreds of millions of dollars of, of lobbying that, that takes place in Congress. Um, so it's a lot that, that we're pushing against, but um, that's why I tell people, you can't control these policies, you know, government policies, tend to take a long time. You know, change happens slowly um, and people are often reluctant at the higher levels to make those difficult decisions, not only because of the economic profit factors, but for political factors as well. In fact, 
a couple times I have written letters to the United Nations about all of this and have gotten no response. Um, also, the UN Climate Summit that took place last fall, Dr. Silas Rao, who I'm sure you've had on your show, um, he's the head of climate healers. He and Glenn Merzer went to Glasgow, Scotland, but the issue of animal agriculture wasn't even on the agenda. So that's why it's so important for us as consumers to make our voices heard through the types of food that we eat and support and buy. All right. So uh, you said a little bit ago that 60 plus percent of subsidies go to the meat and dairy industries. I'm curious, though, in just uh, raw raw terms here, which of the two industries is a bigger factor when it comes to the environment? Is there a bigger villain of the two? Um, gosh, it, it's really hard to say. I mean, the whole the whole industry is a villain. I mean, you look at, at what happens with cows, for instance, each cow uh, exhales like 50 gallons of methane a day. Um, and of course, oftentimes people will say, oh, the dairy industry, that's different from, you know, from the beef industry, when of course, all the cows are exploited. Um, the dairy cows, after only four to six years of life, when they can no longer um, produce calves, they're slaughtered. Every part of the cow is used, whether it's, you know, the, the dairy cows that that are just in such a horrific shape and, and they're they're killed. Um, oftentimes their meat is, is used for dog food. And of course you have beef skin, uh, cow skin that's used for leather. Uh, parts of the hooves of the animals could be used in plastics and, and other products. So all, all of this is about seeing the animal as a unit of production. It's an all-for-profit industry. And so we need to see that this is something that, you know, we, we, we're not aware of it in a detailed manner, but all these things are making a difference and hurting the planet, whether it's the cow raised for the dairy milk or for meat. Well, here's an interesting question that I have for you as well. This stems from a conversation really I was having kind of recently. It was uh, with somebody who, you know, wasn't necessarily a, a big believer in climate change. And I think that when somebody has their heels dug in like that um, and you're trying to tell them about the benefits of a plant-based diet, uh, I find that it's especially hard because then they don't necessarily identify the problem that there is in fact a problem right. in the first place so if somebody doesn't even see that climate change is an issue how in the world can you go about swaying them and and getting this information to really kind of register right um from all of my travels and talks with people around the world i have found at least it's been my experience that people are mostly centered on their own health and so I think getting the message out that better food, better planet is a saying that I have. Um, oftentimes people that initially go vegan for health, right away they see the health benefits. And then that oftentimes opens them up to realize that the impact goes much further than their bodies 
um, and they just learn more. Um, they watch documentaries, they attend conferences, and they really see that there is this direct correlation and connection. I was watching earlier today an interview with Dr. Michael Clapper, who I'm sure you you've had on the podcast, and of he course. had this wonderful, wonderful analogy. He said that if you look at the Earth, the Earth essentially has a fever. It's like this Earth is a patient, okay? And and the Earth also has respiratory problems due to the greenhouse gases. And the arteries of the Earth are the rivers and oceans that are increasingly exploited and damaged um, and polluted. And so there's really this this connection, this correspondence between how we treat our bodies and the result of what we see that's happening with the planet. So I think all we can do to educate folks about this is is so important. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I love that big picture thinking. Um, but as you said, change is slow, and it can take right. people some time to be able to connect all the dots. So right. go, going back to the conversation I was having with this person, they were like, okay, Chuck, I hear you, but it takes planes, trains, and automobiles to get all of that fresh fruit and uh, vegetables that you love so much to the grocery stores as well. And I remember standing there, I was like, they are absolutely right. Yes, it does. And I'm just going to like concede that fact to them. But then I went right back to the resource argument as a whole. Right, uh, exactly. You know, I just think, yeah, I, I wish that I, I, you know, Dr. Kong, I don't even know. So it's like, if somebody were to give you that plane, trains and automobiles response, uh, what would your response then be to that person? Right. I would say that, you know, the environmental impacts, the improvement in environmental impacts is so much greater when people go plant-based as opposed to say, eating locally. So the impacts from um, from animal agriculture are, are going to be way greater than the impacts from transportation. Um, and, and we've seen a lot of studies about that, um, where it's about four times the amount of uh, greenhouse gas emissions from animal agriculture compared to global transportation, to all the planes and trains and, and, and cars combined. Um, and getting back to Dr. Rao, he, he talks about animal agriculture and pointing out, he did this tremendous study and he came up with the figure of 87% that animal agriculture is contributing to greenhouse gases and, and the climate. Um, so again, it, it's a matter like you're saying, Chuck, that, that we don't see this, you know, it's sort of invisible to most people. They don't see that connection with animal agriculture to the planet they they see you know pollution they see the cars they see the traffic so um a lot of attention has been given to that and not enough to methane emissions from animal agriculture and all of the other environmental damage that's associated with that and i guess it's my hope that 
at least here's how I, I see it. You know, people go vegan for one of three reasons. It's either for their own health, which the majority of people do. Uh, it's either for uh, animal efficacy uh, reasons or it's uh, for the environment. But inevitably, once you're in, you kind of gravitate toward those other two as well. So you, you're really involved with all three. It's it's kind of impossible once you're in that door to not <laughs> and mingle with everybody who's there for every reason. Um, but I do think that going back to going vegan for your health, I would hope that once somebody realizes that, hey, not only can it lower my blood pressure, reduce my risk of cancer and Alzheimer's, possibly even reverse heart disease. Right. Uh, but, oh, by the way, this is also yeah. good for the planet. Like to me, then the planet becomes a big old bonus as opposed to just an aside, like an afterthought. Right. So. Right. Right. I would think, yeah. I mean, maybe that is the way to to motivate the person who really has their heels dug in. Yeah. And I, I've spoken to a lot of people who did go vegan initially for health. And just like you said, that then something about going vegan for health, what it what I found, and I actually found this when I first went vegetarian, is that it creates for yourself a new mindset. It's like there's more clarity and more focus and more a sense of, you know, for lack of a better word, inner peace. You start seeing things in a different way. You start, I think, enlarging your capacity for compassion. And it's not only for your body, you start seeing it in other animals. You become more sensitized to nature and what's happening to the earth. So I think it, it is very interesting how everybody, you know, it's never one direct path by which someone goes vegan. Like for me and for my husband, it was ethically centered. And then it was, gee, by the way, we're like a whole lot healthier too. <laughs> so for me, the, the health was, um, was kind of a side thing, which is sort of, sort of interesting. And of course, it's a wonderful side effect to have, right? To have <laughs> such good health. So um, yeah, yeah, everybody's... Um, everybody's journey is different. And oh yeah. But that's I like, yeah. that's also what I love about this show is like hearing about all of these different journeys and the different paths that people have taken um, all to wind up kind of in the same place, uh, which is, which is really kind of fun. Um, you're such a positive individual. I'd like to think that I am too. So forgive me in advance for asking kind of a negative question here. Okay. Um, but really just flat out what happens if we don't start making some changes like what is the end game here oh gosh if we don't start making changes i mean you read the news you know the stories about rising sea levels drought wildfires uh climate refugees who who are moving north how certain cities um jakarta in indonesia is sinking you know we see these hear about all of these stories around the planet where it's going to be difficult to survive. More and more of our soil resources are being depleted. Uh, world hunger is going to rise. I mean, it's already um, exacerbated by the fact that nearly half of global feed crops go to the animals instead of to the humans who need them the most. So, um, and then, of course, in terms of global health, the rise in obesity, right? And I'm sure you're really cognizant of all the, the health aspects. Um, Western disease, uh, Western diseases um, happening in developing countries. You see consumption of animal flesh as something desirable. In fact, 
I know this is a depressing fact, but uh, meat consumption is expected to rise by, you know, double by 2050. So I, I also don't know what, what is it going to take? Um, and another thing with the, the pandemic, which hopefully we're coming out of, I was depressed by the fact that this could have been a huge wake-up call, a wake-up call of, gee, this originated with a jump of the virus from animals to humans. We need to look more carefully about what we're doing with animal exploitation so this doesn't happen again. But when you look at mainstream media, you do not see that kind of messaging. In fact, what you saw was dismay over global food chains are disrupted and, oh, we're going to have to kill these millions of chickens because we can't process them. And that's, you know, as an ethical vegan, that was especially painful for me because, I mean, it was even more so than, than normal that, that all of these millions and millions of animals are being slaughtered. They're being killed. And what do we call it? We call it depopulation or we call it culling. We've become so distanced, so numbed to what is the greatest amount of cruelty and killing taking place on the planet today. And, and to me, that, that is just immensely tragic that, that as a human race, we've become numbed to what should be the greatest thing we have to give to others. And that's our love and compassion. Jim Mason, who wrote the book that <laughs> turned me against eating animals, he has this wonderful term. He says that society has managed to self-anesthetize itself, you know, to not think about it, you know, to say, oh, well, that's, and to not even acknowledge that they're complicit in this huge amount of violence. So, to me, I think the most important thing we need to do is not only get the message out there about the harm that animal agriculture does to the planet, but to our very sense of being, what it means to be a sentient being, and how can we continue to do this to our kindred animals. Have there been studies that have been able to quantify, I know that we talked about one person at a time toward the beginning of the interview, but have there been studies that have been able to quantify like what percentage of the population would need to eliminate meat and dairy for their diet to make a uh, really measurable difference? Well, there have been um, some studies done by, I think it's Marco Springman at the University of Oxford, um, and also the Eat Lancet Commission in 2019, they did these really thorough, comprehensive studies about food and the effect of food production on the environment. And they basically said that we would have to double or even triple our consumption of plant products and at least have our consumption of animal products. Um, which is very serious. I mean, it's essentially saying we're going to have to make a radical shift. I call it a food revolution. It mm -hmm. can't just be cutting out a little bit of meat from your diet in order to make these changes for individual health and global uh, global health. We're really going to to have to make these these changes.
And it seems like the younger generation is really, you know, keeping a close eye on that that very thing. Do you think it's reasonable to expect that that kind of change could occur? Maybe not in the next 20, 30, 50 years, but maybe in the next century even? Yeah, I mean, I hope so. Um, I look at the percentage of vegans. I think there's like... Um, 10% of the world is either vegetarian or vegan. I'm not sure if that figure is accurate or not. Um, but I, I hope so. I don't know if it will happen in our lifetimes, but um, I'm hoping that, that we just have a better future ahead of us. The best we can do is to continue doing what we're doing, to advocate for the vegan lifestyle as something that's you know, it's not just a diet. It's not just this trendy kind of thing that's going to disappear after a while. We've already seen it go mainstream. And people are more accepting of vegans. And we need to promote change in any ways that we can. All right. And and as we said, when it comes to the environment, a lot of times it's hard to see the impact, but what people can uh, really call tangible is the data that we do have available. So I want to revisit some of the stats that you were giving earlier, comparing a vegan diet versus the typical omnivorous diet. So when it comes to just generally speaking, the carbon footprint, how much smaller is that when you're eating a plant-based diet? Right. So basically you can cut your carbon footprint in half. In fact, there are some apps out there that you can uh, get. I'm not sure exactly what some of the names are, where you can enter what your dietary choices are and also other lifestyle factors. And you can actually, this app will actually compute what your carbon footprint is. So there are actually tangible ways, um, apps and programs that will actually do that for you, which is, which is very exciting. So in addition to cutting the carbon footprint in half, um, I was talking about how, you know, vegans use a 13th of the water and an 18th of the land resources that a typical animal flesh consumer uses. 11 times more fossil fuel is used to produce a calorie of animal protein versus plant protein. It really comes down also to just the massive inefficiency. We're growing all of these all of these crops for animals, yet when one consumes animal flesh, you're only getting 30% of the plant's energy. Because of course, the plant is processed through the animal's digestive system. So we wind up only getting a small percentage of what that plant uh, offered to the animal. Um, so there's this wonderful saying by Gary Yurovsky where, you know, his most famous speech ever, I think that's what it's called, but he says, eat plants directly. Don't use the animal as a filter. And, and that's kind of a, a good way to just kind of sum up, you know, the impact of using animals as a food source. It's massively inefficient. We can get our nutrients by eating the plants directly. And, and I think that that's something that more and more people are starting to realize.
Absolutely. And to simplify it even further, I mean, you yeah. can put it in even fewer words and just say <laughs> cut out the middleman. And that's a term that everybody understands, right? Yeah, yeah. that's a <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I was just running some numbers here when you were um, speaking earlier, you talked about, I believe you said uh, that if you're eating a vegan diet, you're using roughly a thousand gallons less of water per day. Um, I mean, you think about that over the course yeah. of a year. I mean, that's- I know. Yeah. 356- thousand yeah. gallons of water yeah. that are being saved and that that's a norm think about how many bathtubs that could fill up that right, is a right. lot <laughs> yeah you i know? mean think, think of the tremendous amount of of water usage it's something like gosh like 30 percent of of water usage goes to animal agriculture and that's because first of all you're using water to grow the crops and then animals consume huge amounts gallons and gallons of water every day water being used for the various facilities um you know just just to run the operations and then all the transport and all of those things again that we don't see they're all in the background but um but uh, an but animal agriculture is a huge depleter of um of water and we haven't even talked about soil you know, with we've lost over, I think we lose over a billion tons of topsoil every day when you look at all of the grazing land that's being used by animals and the deforestation that's happening. We're also jeopardizing the quality of our soils. Soils actually absorb four times the amount of carbon than trees. A lot, a lot of people don't realize that. Um, so we need to do what we can to stop the, the massive deforestation that's going on and find ways to regenerate our natural resources and turn, turn around what's happening with, with species loss, which, which is, is really, really horrendous. Well, I want to take this conversation in a more positive direction. I want to ask you about uh, about your book, Vegan Voices, which is a collection of inspiring essays by a lot of movers and shakers uh, within this community. So um, what inspired you to put this book out and tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, actually, I, you know, during the pandemic, I think you mentioned I'm a performing pianist and a lot of my concerts got either delayed or canceled. So I had more free time at home, and I'm sure a lot of us went through that. And one morning I woke up, and as you know, during sleep, your brain regenerates, and sometimes you wake up with insights or a solution to a problem. And I actually woke up, and the word vegan voices was right in front of me. And it's like I thought, okay, I need to put a book together that will raise awareness of how important going vegan is and to show all the different paths that people can take. And I, I really like the fact that, that I was able to get 50 fantastic people from all around the world because people are inspired, right? When they, they read someone's personal story and, and through reading the book, you realize that veganism is really about personal identity. It's about discovering and living what you value. And it's also about self-empowerment, that, that we can take more of a direct decision in how we're going to shape our lives. Um, 
through putting these 50 essays together, I was just so, you know, in some instances, I was moved to tears. Some of the essays are so powerful. But I was also inspired and realized just how powerful the vegan community is and how, as a community, we need to support each other and that the work we're doing, we're all here at this time for an important purpose. So that's how the book came together. And it took about a year to put together and it was released by Lantern Publishing and Media last fall. And I want to give a shout out to Brian Normoyle, who is now the president of Lantern Publishing. And I urge everybody to buy the book if they haven't already. They can go to the Lantern website at lanternpm.org. The book is also available on Amazon, and it's also available as an ebook. And we'll uh, put a link to uh, to pick up your copy uh, right in the uh, episode notes here, or the show description, um, and just the collection of, of individuals that you have here. I mean, I'm looking at the list right now. Gene Bauer, I spent some time with him this past weekend at a VegFest. Phenomenal human being. Dr. Will Tuttle, he's been on the program before. T. Colin Campbell, I mean, the name doesn't get much larger than that. So many others uh, who have contributed essays to this book. I mean, it really is just a fascinating read, and I do hope that everybody kind of picks up their copy and becomes inspired because gosh knows uh, with some of the facts that we put out there today, you might need to, a little pick me up wouldn't, wouldn't be such right. a bad idea. Um, and, and final question that I have for you, Dr. Kong, uh, because you're here, because you are a classically trained pianist, I, I just need to know uh, how do the arts factor into all of this, into your orbit? I mean, you, you're you're on such a, a healthy path here. Uh, we've talked about veganism for the environment, veganism for health, veganism for a lot of things, but not necessarily veganism for the arts. So where where does the piano fit into the equation? Right, right. Um, it's not so much veganism for the arts as it is arts for veganism. Although I'll say that um, when I first went vegetarian. I noticed, of course, that my energy level went up. Um, you know, being in excellent health and physical shape really helps you as a performing artist. And people oftentimes will ask me, well, what does music have to do with being vegan? And I'll tell them that as a public performer, my goal is to move people. It's about connecting people with their inner core, with their deep emotions, with the parts of our brains and hearts that normally we don't access. We live in a very, I would say, material-oriented society. Um, we're concerned with, with our jobs, you know, taking care of our families, you know, all the external things of life. And the thing about sitting in a concert is that you're sitting in silence and you're hearing this, you know, this beautiful music is washing over you. And it's like it opens up another part of your soul, the part that's that's deep in your heart. And I think that's the power of music. And that's exactly what I do as a vegan advocate. I'm trying to open up people's sense of compassion and to look at how their personal choices are so vital um, and they have a life of their own. So I've done a lot of work with a wonderful organization in Worcester, Massachusetts called Compassion Arts Festival. Um, this organization is headed by Ellie Sarti, 
And it's a week-long festival that takes place in November where she gathers musicians and dancers, visual artists, poets. It's been virtual for the past three years, but we can use art as a way to get people to think about their choices. And we go about it, you know, with the arts, it's like there's a different sensory pathway. People are not just moved by facts and figures and even documentaries. Sometimes using the arts is a way to touch people more emotionally. And in that way, I think it becomes very, very powerful. I also want to mention a couple of musicians that I hope to be working with. One was a guest on your show, uh, a fantastic singer, opera singer, Bulent Gunarop, um, amazing individual with such a huge heart. And I hope that we'll be able to collaborate and do some piano and vocal programs to advocate for veganism. And I'll also be doing some work with a wonderful vegan advocate and classical cellist who I met in Houston last month. His name is Christoph Wagner. So my advocacy I hope will be expanding. So not only do I work with books um, and giving talks, but um, I want to do more and more in the field of arts as another way to enhance the vegan message. You are a true Renaissance woman, and it has been oh. an absolute pleasure speaking to you for the uh, past 40 minutes now. Uh, I feel like you and I could talk all day about right, this, right. but um, so I, I guess I'll just give you the invitation to come back anytime. Okay, thank you so much, Chuck. And I know, you know, the, the whole uh, concept behind vegan voices is to be inspired what, with what others have done. And your story is certainly another story that's so inspiring. So I think all the work that we do as individuals has enormous power and can change the world. Change the world. You know, that change can start with your world first, because when you get your world in order, you're healthier, you're happier, you're wiser, you can be more dedicated than ever and really have all of the energy that you need then to help others change their world as well. Awesome conversation. Thank you so much, Dr. Joanne Kong, for being here on the show today. And I also want to take a second to say thank you to everyone who came out to the Fairfax Veg Fest this past weekend. The weather was perfect and man was this place packed. Had such a great time meeting all kinds of exam roomies. I mean, so many of you guys came out and said hi. We had people driving in from New York, Pittsburgh, Norfolk, Virginia. They all came to the Washington DC area with thousands of others to soak up this knowledge and spread a little bit of plant-based cheer for a day. It was so great to be there. And in life, sometimes there are these surreal moments and the speaker's dinner the night before VegFest was one of them for me. I was lucky enough to be invited to this. And it was amazing and extraordinary to be able to break bread with the likes of T. Colin Campbell and Dr. Jim Loomis and Washington Commanders legend and NFL Hall of Famer Daryl Green. James Wilkes from the Game Changers was there. Gwen Whitaker. The food that was served was amazing. The, the main course was this quinoa, this 
Thai peanut quinoa dish with baked tofu over top of it that was just mind-blowingly good. So many tasty fresh vegetables in there. SOS, just so daggone tasty. But the highlight of the night, and here's something that you did not know about James Wilkes, is that this guy is a magician, a legitimate magician. So over the pandemic, he's been studying how to perform magic and he's been on YouTube. And this guy pulled out a deck of cards after dinner and he starts putting on this show and he's turning blue cards to red cards and he's able to pull what number we're thinking of based off of where this card is in a deck. And it was just like, what is happening right now? But this guy is David Blaine, in addition to being a plant-based expert. So just an enormously fun time. So thank you to everyone who came out to the VegFest and a special thanks to Gwen Whitaker for organizing that and all of the hard work that went into it. I know that there were thousands and thousands of people who had their health IQ raised on that day. And if you would like to raise your health IQ and lose a little weight along the way, why not look into the 12-week plant-based weight loss program that is coming up with Dr. Vanita Rahman and dietitian Karen Smith. That begins Saturday, May 14th and runs through Saturday, July 30th. It's a 12-week program. You meet for a little bit over an hour for each of those 12 weeks on Saturdays, and you learn all kinds of things that are on the docket there, talking about not just cooking tips and demos, but getting into the emotional aspect of it too. Being able to identify whether you're trying to eat because of your emotions or whether you're actually hungry. Plus, we're going to be talking about food addiction. I'll be speaking on that particular weekend. That's week six. So I'll be speaking at that. You can register right now, pcrm.org slash weight loss program. A lot of people have had success. And if you register before April 29th, that is the day after this show drops. If you register before April 29th, you can get a special rate on the program. Save money and lose weight at the same time. Great, great, great deal. PCRM.org slash weight loss program is the place to go to sign up. And I want to say thank you once again to Marty Rosenthal for sponsoring this episode of The Exam Room. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based. <laughs> <laughs>